you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I am thrilled to be joined today by Bethany Baines, a badass breadwinning woman. Bethany, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So before we get started, as I usually do, let me first introduce you to Bethany. Bethany Baines is a tireless women's advocate and recognized leader on the topic of breadwinning women. As a proud Brennett winning woman herself, as I mentioned, she was shocked at the lack of in-depth and engaging resources, as well as the general negative sentiment surrounding this role. Over the past several years, she's embarked on a journey to shed a positive and motivating light on the complexities of this role. And in doing so, she's creating awareness, building community, and providing resources for women who are the sole or primary earners for their households. This includes being the host of the podcast, Working Wife, Happy Life, which I encourage you to check out. And by the way, while this is our focus today, as I noted, Bethany is a breadwinner herself with a full-time job in addition to doing this amazing work. So Bethany, I'd love to start with having you share, just so people have context, a high-level overview of your career. Just where did you start and kind of what are you doing now? Yeah, thank you so much for for that introduction. And I have to say, it gets me emotional every time because it's been such a you know decade plus long journey in that role, and to be able to embrace it and have that work connect with uh, women and men as broadly as it has is so incredibly fulfilling. I can't even begin to describe it. So thank you. Um, but back to my day job uh, that funds all of this stuff. Um, I have been, I've worked at Google for 17 and a half years, which is insane. And I count every month and every day, um, you know, certainly did not intend to be at, you know, one company for that long. I don't think I had ever been at a company for longer than two years before joining Google. Um, but it's really been such an amazing ride, you know, like any long-term relationship, it's had its ups and downs, but it's been such an incredible journey. Uh, I have been professionally anchored in the ad tech space the entire time that I've been there. So working both with our advertisers and with our third party partners, um, and have held multiple roles across operations, sales, business development, analytics and insights, uh, individual contributor roles, management roles, leadership roles, um, just kind of the full gamut. And I guess that's why when people ask why I've been there so long, I guess that's why, because I feel like I have a new job every few years, even though I'm still with the same company. Uh, we've obviously experienced rapid growth. Um, and through that, I think everybody grows professionally and personally and have very, very deep uh, friendships across the company. And it's just been, it's it's been a real gift of my professional life to be with such an incredible company and to be there for so long. 
Um, so that's my that's my professional side, which has led into uh, some of the personal work as a breadwinning woman. I've I've been the primary breadwinner for my family. Um, since my son was born 14 years ago uh, and became the sole breadwinner for my family after my daughter was born nine years ago. And, uh, you know, it's been quite a journey as my husband retired from the corporate world and focused on, you know, primarily raising the children. And he's also a songwriter. Um, I don't think we recognized what kind of journey we were in for at the moment. It just seemed like a like a math issue of, you know, you're going to stop working and I'm going to continue working and somebody's got to, you know, take care of this side of things and somebody else has to take care of that side of things. And luckily we have two able-bodied people to divide that too. We didn't really think about the gender line. So uh, this has been, um, you know, like I said, 10 plus years in the making and it's been a real uh, evolution, I think, for our family and something that I've wanted to share broadly so that others can maybe get to the point that we're at in terms of our confidence and our happiness and our contentment with our roles, uh, perhaps a lot faster than, than we were able to. Uh, I love that. And I look forward to talking about that more and hearing some wisdom from you to help others in that regard. I wanted to start too with this term of breadwinner or earner, because it was it's an interesting term in some ways. And in a prior interview, you had said, if you are earning and you are keeping lights on in the house, you are, my friend, are a breadwinner. And that got me to even pause to be like, oh yeah, I guess I'm a breadwinner. I just never really thought about it in those terms. So I was curious, why was it important to you to bring light to women earners in this way and to provide resources to address the unique challenges they face? Yeah, well, a few things. So one, it's a mouthful, right? Everyone that says breadwinning women, I say it 20 times a day. But everybody else that says it, you kind of trip up on it because it's it's first of all, I guess phonetically, it's just a lot to say. But it's also this kind of deep rooted mental hurdle to get over in that women traditionally have not been raised to think of themselves as breadwinners. We've not been raised to assume that we will be breadwinners at some point for our family. Um, and it's not necessarily just for your family. So that was one of the more surprising things that really opened my eyes when I created this community. I, I run a community within Google's walls of uh, over 3000 breadwinning women across the globe. And, you know, many of them are not in the scenario I described of my personal uh, set up, right? They are not in relationships or they are in same sex relationships or they do or don't have children or they are caring for extended family members or elderly family members or they are happily single and leading their household. Um, and all of those factors, all, all of those scenarios are actually breadwinning women who never gave themselves that power to say, I am head of household. I am determining my financial future. I am determining my investments um, versus in many cases, we're kind of waiting if we're single for life to start when we meet somebody and then we can make those decisions. But until then I'm just single. And it's like, no, life is happening now. And these things are are within your power and you should harness that positivity and heart and own that power. It is not a liability. It is not a wait and see. It is not a, um, you know, it's not anything to be ashamed of or threatened by for future partners. And I think those are the types of conversations that I like to bring to light because it's a mentality shift and it is very, um, 
it's powerful. It's necessary. It's something we are not taught. Um, it is something when you think about the financial institutions, we are intentionally left out of but in a industry that's been built for and, and by men. Um, so there's some real implications to women not thinking of themselves in this role and not thinking of their career path or their life journey in those ways. So even if you think about, you know, both the emotional and financial side of it, think about a home, for example, if you are in a partnership and I had a wonderful interview with Jennifer Barrett, who just wrote an awesome book called think like a breadwinner, um, where she wanted this life and she could visualize this life that she wanted and she didn't know how to get there. And she and her partner weren't heading in that direction. And she had that moment of why am I waiting for him or us to figure this out? I am going to figure out how to get exactly what I want and what that path is. And so when you connect those emotional goals with financial you know, investments or decisions, right? Of which roles are you going to take and which type of um, career path are you going to head down or what type of degree are you going to get? Those things become very meaningful choices at each step of your life in order to provide for yourself and your family that life that you want. And I will also share a, a stat that I think surprises a lot of people. And there's a dearth of, of, you know, data in this space, it's getting better over the years, but um, roughly 40 plus, so sometimes it's 42, sometimes it's 43% of women uh, in the US with children under 18 in their household are the financial breadwinners for their families. So that's a lot more of us than we've been led to believe. When you look across media, entertainment, um, you know, just generally where the the divides are in terms of degrees and studying all that stuff, you would think when you hear about the pay gap that that's not the case, but it is the case. We are no longer secondary earners, yet there is this huge assumption that we are. And so that is really where the, the term breadwinning woman is so critical for us to really get super comfortable with the vernacular, get super comfortable with the concept and then make decisions based on that assumption that every little girl out there in school right now is probably just as likely as every little boy to be financially leading her household, regardless of the makeup of that household at some point in her life. So let's get her ready for that. Mm, so powerful. And in sharing that, it, it makes me realize the rationale or the reason why so many women struggle with financial literacy and these norms that are kind of in our society around this and the mental shift that people need to make because they aren't thinking about themselves in this way. I even experienced this coming out of business school where I kind of wasn't thinking about my own financial kind of investments, if you will. It was a crazy time in the Bay Area. I there It was kind of in terms of uh, the the dot com bubble and like maybe you should buy a house now because there's the bubble and in my mind you know I probably did have money for a down payment but in my mind I'm like why would I buy a house now when I'm single like that didn't make any sense to me at all and it's based on these constructs of how one should think mm -hmm. about their finances and when one should make certain investments versus not it's a really interesting kind of thing to bring to light for for women uh, and. I'm curious when you start to have these conversations with women, are there certain shifts that that you see people starting to make and conversations that they're starting to have around this uh, area of 
both financial literacy, but then what it means for how they start to shape their lives and making choices around, like you were saying, career roles or even financial investments per se. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the financial literary literacy piece is so important. Now I am not a financial expert. In fact, that is one area when asked, you know, what's the one thing you want to work on? It's that it's just not a space I'm super comfortable with. It's not a space that I feel like I fully understand. And actually the more I understand about it, the more I realize there's no rhyme or reason. Anybody that's been watching the stock market over the past 18 months, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know? So it's, it, there, there's this part of it that you think it's the secret language that is, you know, super logical and much of it isn't right. And so it's just kind of staying ahead and, and staying on top of what's actually happening. Now, look, there's people who can spend their days doing that, watching CNBC or looking at certain real estate booms or those types of things and following that. Um, I have, you know, basically three jobs, right? I have my day job. I am a mom and a wife and I have my podcast and, and that community that I run. So I don't have that kind of time. And so what I found is that when you look at certain financial institutions, there are there's a match for every kind of type of personality or type of level of engagement that you want to take control of these pieces. And so I encourage every woman to do that soul searching in the same way you think about, you know, what type of a person are you? Are you a night person or a morning person? Do you like to exercise or do you like to meditate? Like, you know, th those things that you look at, which side of the spectrum are you on? do the same for your financial engagement and what you're comfortable with, and then find an institution that will meet you there. Cause mm -hmm. that's control. It doesn't mean you have to be like this expert pundit. It just means you have to know yourself and your comfort level and your goals, and then find somebody who listens to you because that is the other thing, particularly with women in finance. I can't tell you how many times, I mean, this was, years ago, but we went to go buy a car and, you know, the salesperson's only making eye contact with my husband. And he literally said, he's like, I don't know why you keep looking at me. She's got the money. You know, it was just one of those moments where it's like, you have to understand that that's going to happen. You don't have to accept that. Right. So when that happens, take back your power. You are the one in the driver's seat. There are plenty of platforms. There's Elevest. There is, um, uh, Stacy Francis, who runs Francis Financial. These are women in my network that run financial institutions for women. So you will find somebody who speaks to you the way you deserve to be spoken to and manages your money with your best interests in, in mind and helps you find that match. So I think that's really one huge piece of, of um, one huge important piece in this financial literacy. But the other piece that you're talking about is kind of this Create, taking agency of your own life and your own goals and allowing yourself to buck these norms that have been put in place for us that you meet someone, you fall in love, you get married, you buy a house, you have a child. Like I, I when I was young and I'm not saying my parents were putting any of this on me, but I had a candle on my desk that you would burn according to age, right? So it was one, two, three, four, you know, all the different ages. And then next to the ages were little um, logos of stuff, right? Like at 18, it was the graduation camp cap. And then, you know, maybe at 23, it was an engagement ring. And it, how messed up is that, right? Like, it's just such a weird, I mean, and I'm sure it was a sweet gift from somebody and, you know, we just had it in my room, but what kind of message is that sending in terms of like this ladder of expectations of what your life should look like and what it should be like? And guess what? 
None of our lives turn out like that. Or if they do, we are more shocked than anybody because our foundations maybe weren't that predictable, right? So that's where I, I talk about kind of taking control of what success means for you, what goals are yours, what what life is meaningful for you. And so when you think about making a decision about a home purchase in an area that you think, well, why would I buy a home? I'm single. You don't have to buy a five-bedroom home, right? If real estate investment is something you think is a smart thing to get into, or you want to feel like, hey, I'd like to host the holidays this year, and I'd like to decorate in my taste, so I'm going to buy a house. Um, I see a lot of women, I'm in my mid-40s, I see women in in, in my, um, my contemporaries who are purchasing their own homes now in a way of like, why am I waiting for life to start? This is it. I want to plant my own roots. And should I meet someone who wants to live somewhere else Houses can be bought and sold. This is not something, you know, and so I feel like there's a lot of women that will hold themselves back from making those decisions. Whereas, do you think men would? You know, it, it's not always the gender divide, but when you think about things in those terms, probably not, right? They'd probably anchor and then, you know, if something came up, they'd adjust or they would incorporate into the life as they had it. And I think more women need to start thinking in those terms to create their own fulfillment. I love that. And I think that starts to play into what you and I were talking about before we uh, started recording here, which is, you know, when I think about sustainable ambition, I think about, well, how do you manage a career from decade to decade? And I think that's especially important for women who may choose to have children. And there's also an arc to our careers in terms of what are we trying to learn in our 20s? You know, we're getting our foundation, we're building our confidence, we're trying to find the right fit for us within our careers. Our 30s are a little bit different and, and then our 40s might be different and so on. And one of the things that comes up is I'm working with, you know, either amongst my peer group, my friends, or as I'm working with coaching clients in their careers, you know, there are a lot of women who are ambitious, want to stay engaged in their careers, also have kids, and they've run into a point where they're saying, this just isn't sustainable anymore. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I need to find something that's more sustaining as I move forward. And so in your experience of what you've kind of experienced yourself or with this three, you know, group of women and community that you have, if you have any tips around how to possibly think about managing your career either over the decades, if you're a woman and you have some of these different, both career and life ambitions, you know, because Sheryl Sandberg said, you know, lean in. (laughs) And yet, you know, some women that are leaning in, it's still, they'll come to a point where they say, this isn't sustainable. So Mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on that? Just what, what helps or even mindsets one should bring when thinking about this? Yeah. So I, we, I used to joke with my friends and I say used to, because we don't see each other anymore, but at work where it's like, I'm leaning in so far, I'm falling over, you know, it's just like, we're, we're here, we're doing this. And it's just, you know, there's so many times where there's a lot of resistance. Um, so I, you know, I think that concept was important in its time. I think it's evolved since then, which is wonderful to see, but, um, you know, I think, Look, there's so much in your question, and I'm trying to decide what's the best kind of way to to parse this out. But, you know, I've been with a company for almost two decades, 
And so I've gone through a huge personal arc as well as professional arc through that. And there have been times where, yes, I have those moments of, I, I, I can't keep this up. I am literally stretched so thin and I'm not giving anyone what they need or deserve from me. Right. And, and that's a really terrible feeling when you feel like I am failing in all of the buckets that I'm supposed to be succeeding in. And those moments are going to happen and they're going to happen in your twenties. They're going to happen in your thirties. They're going to happen in your forties. And I'm guessing they're going to happen in your fifties. And so it's managing yourself through those times where you realize like, where am I giving too much? Where am I not giving enough? Um, and what am I able to do about it? And in some cases, just something's got to give and you have to forgive yourself kind of, with, with, with grace, that space of saying no, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no to a project at work. It's okay to say no to a promotion or a relocation if you're offered. It's okay to say no to the event at school at 12 p.m. till 12, 10 p.m. that every other parent somehow seems to be able to attend. It's okay to say no to those things, as long as you're finding the spaces where you can say yes and fully engage in it. So I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got from a, a career coach who also was a personal friend is when you feel like life is happening to you, right? It's just, it's all coming in and you, you're drinking from the fire hose and you can't keep up to kind of reverse the mental flow to decide where you say yes and where you say no. Put it in the yes or the no bucket, whatever it is. And once you've done that, you don't look back. It's almost like wedding dress shopping that once you've found the dress, you don't go back to the store, that's it. So you put it in the yes or the no bin. And what you've done with that is one, you've rid yourself of any guilt because you decided what you did. And two, you've regained control of this life that's happening to you to the life that you want to shape. And the more you start to say yes or no, the more you create one kind of your, your structure of what works for you, but also your boundaries to other people. So when they're consistently asking you for something and you are consistently saying yes, what you're doing is you're actually sending them a message that I want more of this, right? So that's a really positive thing. Unless you're saying yes to stuff you want to say no to, then you're going to have this really vicious cycle of that bucket filling up with things that you want to go in the other bucket. And likewise, when you start to say no, they will stop asking you <laughs> for the things you don't want to do. And it takes time, right? It takes time to, I have a friend who always says you, you really have to teach people how you want to be loved. And this is the same way. You really have to teach people how you want to be treated, how you want to be, you know, utilized and your highest and best use is something our company's CFO always leans on, which is a great statement. And so the more that you set these boundaries for yourself, the more the world responds to them and then you build what's sustainable. Um, but I will also share, as we you know, talked about before, I have way more confidence saying no in, at 45 than I did at 25, 33 for some reason was a really hard year for me. You know, it's like there are these stages in your life where you're really, um, you know, struggling with what your yes and no buckets are and then struggling with whether or not you feel you are powerful enough to say that. So I recognize that those are things that are going to happen 
and and over the decades, those things change, right? Sometimes it's in your professional career. Sometimes it's family obligations, right? So I'm raising my own family and I have my family that I came from. They are two very different orbits. And so saying yes or no to certain things, I have to prioritize the family I've created versus the family I've come from. And so those are the things that as you evolve, as you grow, you gain more confidence and you gain more opportunities to, you know, try to flex those muscles or build those muscles. Um, but I think that was by far the most profound and simplistic advice I ever got and something I go to every day. Yes, I, it does sound really powerful and quite simple to just step into this idea of what do you want to say yes to and what do you want to say no to? And almost I'm hearing from you, those yes things are like, what do you want to attract more of? And mm -hmm. the no things are the things that you, you don't want to attract, right? As you're saying, as well as I love this, you know, those yes things are, they make the best use of you. And I also, I love that you're bringing this up. So even though there's this tension between both knowing what you want to say yes to versus no to, and then also having the confidence to say this, I love encouraging women and really anybody to learn to start to say yes or no, or be in awareness around what they want to say yes or no to, and to really build that muscle. Because I think yeah. it's not something we're really taught to do. So many of the people that I talk to will say, I don't know what I want. I, you know, I, they're not attuned to kind of their life is so busy. We kind of don't give ourselves enough space to kind of get attuned to what we want. So I think I love this simple counsel and to start to teach people to really stay attuned to this for themselves. And, and I think another key part of this, right? So you've now regained control. You're deciding your buckets, recognize you're going to hit resistance in both of those, right? So you say yes to that trip. That's going to take you to Tokyo for two weeks and your home life is going to be like, wait, what? You know, so you have to get the, 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 the beauty and the lessons and the growth and the boundaries are through working through that resistance. It's not just this hardcore no or yes, it's yes, because, and no, because, and get really confident in what the reasoning is and communicating that to people, because that's what will create the behavioral acceptance that will make those decisions much easier. Where, you know, look, I think these past, I say two years because I'm just projecting we're going to be in it for <laughs> several months, but, you know, everything's blurred for those of us that are fortunate enough to work remotely, right? Like everything is here. And I was sharing with a colleague of mine yesterday where I feel like work is maybe not as crazy as it's ever been, but it's because I'm home where I'm also taking in all of the energy of what's happening in my household too. So when things are going super smooth, great. When things are a little bit stressful or schedules are a little bit hectic, that used to be nothing I would see. I'd be in the office. So I didn't have to take any of that like, you know, universal energy on. Now it's part of this thing. And so again, I'm in this bucket of saying, Yes, I'm going to accept that that chaos is around us and I'm going to try to engage in a way that I can help to simplify or no, I'm going to lock the door. That's your stuff. And I'm going to just not take any of that on today. And so this is what I'm saying where these things, they ebb and flow. But when you establish that that is your approach, 
and you communicate that and you make that clear to the people around you, it makes each of those engagements easier down the road. It's like teaching teaching a man or woman to fish, right? It just makes it easier. So I encourage as, as early as you can to start doing that decisioning and it takes time, it builds muscle, marathon, not a sprint, um, but it really helps kind of keep your focus. Yeah, that's great. Great and wise counsel. I'm wondering, Bethany, if you're willing to share, I was curious about how you think about your own career ambitions and how have they stayed the same? Did they change when you had kids? Did they change when you became the primary and and then sole breadwinner? Um, How have you thought about your own ambition over time? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm happy to share. Um, You know, it's, the word ambition is one that I've always struggled with because anybody who's known me before my career, like this is one big happy accident. You know, I don't have an MBA. I did not go to business school. I was supposed to be like a photographer for Lonely Planet. You know, I just had like a totally different vision of, of where my life was going to go. Um, and, and I don't mean that it was so haphazard. It just was serendipitous. I fell into something and I found out that I was really good at business and I continued to want to grow and learn more. And, um, you know, but yes, it's certainly evolved over those time periods. I've had moments where before I became the primary breadwinner, I was like, Oh my God, I can't do all this. I'm just going to stop working. And, you know, had those moments, had those conversations with my company and my, my manager and my HR rep of like, I cannot do this right now. Um, and it was really, uh, one of those things where I feel like sometimes it's really emotional, sometimes it's really logistical. Um, and then sometimes it's just, you know, I, I would say at that time where I felt like I was ready to throw in the towel happened to be closely aligned with the time that my husband's company went into chapter 11 and he got laid off. Right. So it's one of those moments where you're like, Oh, okay, well now we're going down this path. Um, and you know, that, created my ambition, certainly once I became the sole breadwinner of like, awesome. Okay. So this, and it actually got so much easier because I was like, this is my lane. This is your lane. And that really freed me up to, you know, raise my hand for any, you know, opportunity that came my way. So it's, it's evolved over time. And I think when you hit on the space of kind of over time and that evolution, I I'm at a space now where you know, I kind of think of things in this bucket where I'm like, okay, I'm coming up on 20 years. Like that's insane. I'm probably going to be working for another 20 years. So what does that next 20 years look like? And that's a super daunting thought process, right? Um, I actually had a former, um, my former VP say to me, she's like, why does it have to be 20 years? Can it just be five, you know, and kind of giving yourself that freedom to not try to make these big bucket decisions. Um, but at the same rate, I do think you want to have this long-term view of like, okay, well, I've picked up all of these pieces along this way. What does that translate into and what can that become? Um, so as I've kind of gone through my career kind of growth and arc, there's been moments where I've been super thrilled and, you know, completely humbled by my opportunities and other moments where I feel like I'm being completely underutilized. Right. And, and that is a natural kind of ebb and flow of any, you know, relationship, engagement, career, anything. And so it's really, again, back to recognizing for yourself in those moments where you feel like underutilized, is it because you're not learning? Is it because you don't have enough work to do? Is it because you're not making enough impact? And in those moments, 
is there other stuff you can create to fulfill that need in yourself, right? Like if, frankly, if you're working for a company and this is what they're asking you to do, and that's what's valuable to them, sometimes you're like, who am I to question what's valuable to you? I have to answer what's valuable to me. And so if I'm being paid appropriately and I feel like my needs are being met and I'm being supported as a human being here, are there other pieces I can look at to fulfill you know, what makes me whole? And so I will say both from a financial and a you know connection and growth perspective, stop thinking about your job as the only place for fulfillment right? Like we talk about diversifying everything in our life. We talk about diversifying what we eat, diversifying how we exercise, diversifying our friends group. So, you know, different, you know, perspectives. How about diversifying your financial plan and your fulfillment bucket across not just your career, but also other things that bring you fulfillment. So for example, I still work in ad tech. I still work with our partners, but I also have this huge community that I run and, and that fulfills me and, and, frankly, is a benefit to Google in a completely different way. And it's super meaningful to me. And so those are ways that I find to, you know, navigate times where I may not feel necessarily as professionally fulfilled, but I can identify fulfillment in other ways that actually contributes to my professional being, if that makes sense. Um, And then there's other times in my career where there's such an intense workload that you literally feel like you don't have time for other things. And you really have to match that with that energy, right? Like if you feel like you have the energy to give it those times, they can be really exciting and huge growth opportunities and huge learning opportunities. So, you know, leaning into those times that you're working out of a hotel room for two weeks straight to get a deal done. And like, you feel like you are not even taking time to shower, that's super fun. Right. And like finding those times where you are just so clear on what the priority is, it can be so engaging. And is that sustainable? Is that great work-life balance? No, but is that a really cool experience that you'll take with you over the path of your career? Yes. So like there are moments to lean into those things too. Um, so, you know, I, I've thought about my career in many different ways, in many different phases. Um, Sometimes it feels like it's firing on all cylinders. And, you know, sometimes, frankly, even now, I have those moments where we're all isolated and we're all siloed and you're like, God, has everyone forgotten who I am? (laughs) You're just like, everybody's got those creeping insecurities of like, I'm not seeing anybody in the hallways anymore. I'm not making those connections with our senior executives in the same way that we used to be able to. And you know, that's, that's a natural part of what we're all experiencing right now. So, um, you know, I don't know. I feel like there's a very rambly answer, but that we're all just still evolving through it and still, still figuring it out. Now you shared so much that I think is really, really important in terms of kind of setting realistic expectations of what work should be and how it should fulfill you or not. And this fact that it's fluid and can change over time, the fact that, you know, broaden your view of fulfillment and that there's just not one way, you know, this, I, I talk about work-life balance is just not a term I particularly love because we're not always in balance all the time. And I think it sets this unrealistic expectation that it should be. And just like you said, there's going to be moments where you lean in because it's like, Ooh, this is a cool opportunity. I want to invest here. And you, you adjust other parts of your life to, to accommodate that. So in the interest of time, I want to make sure I get in as well, just coming back to the fact that, you know, you and your husband 
have these, I'm going to say like reverse roles and quotes, because in some ways it should just not be normalized. Right. I'm saying I'm, right. I'm falling into the societal constructs here, but I'm curious okay. if there are, you know, you, you've said you've been doing this for, for quite some time now. And I think you said nine years as the sole breadwinner, 14 years at, as the primary on the other side of this, are there things you've learned that you would have counsel for other people just in terms of how you you and your husband kind of work or just being in the role of a breadwinning woman that you'd like to share with with folks? Yeah, um, I will say one of the most profound things I've learned and I try to debunk and, and it comes back to your phrasing of this question, too, is language is so important, right? I used to lovingly refer to our family as the flip family. Right. Every time you're in a conversation where somebody's like, how does that work? I'm like, "Okay, just pretend he has a vagina and I have a penis. And that's how it works. Right. It's just like it's not that hard of a concept to get through. But the logistics of it are really challenging, I think, for people to wrap their mind around. Um, But, you know, I, I think when it comes to language, I have had a lot of kind of thoughts and evolution around the term provider. And it's something that we've always associated as financial provisions and that men should be providers. It's something that's, you know, we're taught as like an attractive trait in a potential mate, those types of things. And there are so many different provisions that come into running a household. There's like, yes, there's financial provisions. There's emotional provisions. There's logistical provisions. There's literally food. That is a provision. You know, there's all these other pieces where everyone contributes to the whole. And when you think about, you know, running a household almost as like running a small business, it's just like, where are the roles best fit and who gets the most fulfillment and enjoyment out of them? Right? Like I hate to cook. I, I, I take that back. I don't hate to. I'm just nowhere near as good at it as my husband. And so that was a role he always took on. He was the food boss and he, you know, likes to go shopping, likes to create new things. Um, And so it just, we kind of naturally evolved into certain roles and certain uh, things that we were more passionate about or felt better about. Um, And so I think there is a really hard transition for people in our kind of flip family um, scenario where those roles are not spaces that they're comfortable with, where they don't feel the confidence to, you know, be the primary caregiver as a man, or maybe there's, you know, religious or cultural support that they're missing from their family in those roles. And that is really challenging to come up against because you may feel okay with it in your you know, little bubble inside your house. But once you walk outside that front door, you have to over-index on the confidence of what you're doing in order to get everybody on board with you. Um, and it's it can be really challenging. And I encourage people who are embarking on this situation to really talk with their partner about their comfort level and the language that they want to be used and they the descriptions that they want um, you know, people to hear when they say, well, what do you do? And what does he do? And, um, and have the sticky conversations with the people in your life, whether it's friends or family or school. Again, I, I mentioned this before, but I, we got to lean into the sticky conversations. Otherwise we're just not going to tease out what the real issues are and get through them. Um, so don't avoid it. Just get really comfortable yourselves first 
and then deal with the outside world. But also I say, get comfortable with yourselves first, as if that's an easy part. That is not an easy part. That's in fact, sometimes the hardest part. And so you really have to make sure that as a couple, even if things make sense on paper, like mathematically, you make more, we need somebody to do this. Um, does that match with their goals? Does that match with their identity and their, their self-worth? And if not, talk through why that is. Are those things that we can unwind and, and adjust and rebuild? Are those things that you're just making assumptions about? Or are those truly identifiers for yourself? And if so, you know, for example, if a male partner makes less money, but really identifies with his career, him becoming a primary caregiver is probably going to be a really terrible idea, right? He's not going to be engaged. He's not going to love it in the way that you would want him to. He's not going to feel fulfilled about himself. He's not going to feel fulfilled as a person. Like those are things that are, you know, red flag warning ahead. And so if you're not having those conversations beforehand and making sure that you're really understanding the roles that everybody's comfortable with. Um, but then I would also say setting expectations once you have decided to go down this path is also really important of, you know, here are the things that are really important to me and here are the things that are really important to you. And I'll leave one more resource with your listeners. Um, Eve Rodsky, who's a friend of mine and, and we've done a ton of work together, uh, wrote a book called Fair Play. And it's all about gamifying kind of running a household and what goes into it and who's got really, you know, things that they're very passionate about and how they want to get them done and what their, you know, standard, uh, what does she call it? Their, their limit, their, um, oh, I can't think of the word anyway. Like I, I want it done in this way. And this is important to me. And if you can't own that, I'll own it. But if you own it, you own it, that type of conversation. Um, and so I would really encourage, you know, folks that I've seen in my community that are already having that conversation with their partners before they've had children or before they've cohabitated are really setting themselves up for success. So I, you know, again, you, you can't over communicate on these things and you also have to understand there's adjustments to be made. So as life changes, as kids become more independent, um, you know, as, you know, maybe relocate to a different area where this arrangement made sense in one atmosphere, it doesn't make sense in this other atmosphere. Those are things that are going to have to adjust over time. But again, if you're at that core understanding of the why and the what's important to you guys as a family, as a unit, then the rest of it kind of can fall into the right buckets. Mm, that's great. Thank you for the, all that. And you know, we're just about out of time. I could talk to you for a long time, Bethany, but I'd love to just ask you one quick final question. Is there just a final piece of advice you leave our listeners with around building sustainable ambition? Yeah. And, and we talked about this and I, I've brought it up. Um, I am obsessed with the word grace lately. And it's just this notion of you know, giving yourself grace, giving others grace, assuming the best of intents, um, understanding that you will fail. And how do you find the grace in that failure? How do you find um, the grace in your successes and, and not let those, you know, get outsized in, in your brain? And it's just really giving yourself and others that ability to fail and succeed and embrace both of those things with, with grace and with you know, just compassion. Um, it's, this is all very hard. None of us have it figured out. Even the ones that, you know, I always joke, people would say, how do you do it all? And I'm like, 
<laughs> it's so ridiculous, right? It's like none of us have this figured out. But as long as we, in, you know, find those moments to be graceful with ourselves and others, it's just a more enjoyable ride. Uh, I love that. Thank you for that. And leaving us with give yourself some grace and give others grace. It's so beautiful. And I will capture in the show notes where people can find you. I think they can find you at bethanybaines.com. Is that right? Yeah. Or on Instagram at Bethany Baines or Working Wife Happy Life uh, for the podcast. Yeah. Wonderful. And I'll capture all of that in the show notes. This has been a joy, Bethany. I so appreciate you taking the time and sharing all your wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. It's my pleasure. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.